I'm delighted to be back with you after a couple of weeks away. Of course, two weeks ago, I got the snow-imposed Sabbath that we all got. And then this past weekend, I was leading a collegiate ministries retreat for college students from across North Carolina, which is where I picked up the gift of this cold, which makes me sound like an aging Johnny Cash. Um, But it is a joy to be back here with you. And I want to commend you for your faithfulness to this Living Stones project and to join you in celebrating uh, this rededication today. What a long journey you've been on. I know it's not complete, but what a long journey you've been on and how faithful you've been on it. It's, it's not easy to be disrupted and dislocated. It's not easy to give additional money. It's not easy to be patient. And you've done all those things uh, generously. And I, I simply want to affirm you uh, for your commitment. In the mid-1960s, Earl Weaver was the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. He was notorious for the way he ridiculed umpires. He did it so often and so skillfully that he still holds the American League record for ejections from a game. He got thrown out of a game 97 times because he couldn't control his temper or his mouth. His favorite way to harass an umpire was to charge out of the dugout, uh, scoop dirt up on the shoes of the umpire with his own shoes, get nose to nose with the ump and yell, are you going to get any better or is this it? (laughs) sometimes when I'm aware of the calls I miss in other words of the mistakes I make I subject myself to the Earl Weaver treatment am I going to get any better or is this it Now, Weaver's question reminds me of one that my maternal grandfather asked me. In the late 1970s, when Anita and I were students in seminary in Louisville, we'd come here as often as we could to Huntington to visit our grandparents. And on this one particular trip, we were visiting my mom's parents in their modest home out on Norwood Road, which my grandfather had built with his own hands when he mustered out of the Navy and went to work as a machinist for what was then called the C&O Railroad. One of the things my Papa Fred delighted to do was to ask me questions about the Bible and about religion, which he really hoped would trip me up. And some of his questions were biblical mind teasers, the kinds we've all heard before, it didn't matter that we had all heard them before. He, he loved to ask them, and he would do it with a twinkle in his eye as if to say, now look, I know these questions are ridiculous, but I like watching you fumble <laughs> for an answer. So silly questions like, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? 
It takes a while. To... <laughs> Where did Cain and Abel get their wives? You, you know, being from these parts, he knew about the dangers of a family tree that doesn't branch much. Where, where did Cain and Abel get their wives? Did, did Noah take two mosquitoes and two ants on the ark? If so, why didn't he kill them while he had the chance? <laughs> Things like that. <clears throat> One day, though, he said, son, this is a real question, not like them others. I want to know, how is it possible for a man to go to church for 50 or even 60 years and it not make a lick of difference in him? Sit there year after year in Sunday school and preaching, reading the Bible, listening to sermons and praying prayers. Sit there all that time and be just as mean, as mean as a snake, as the day he started going. I much preferred the question about the mosquitoes and the ants. Because my grandfather wanted me to explain to him how it is that church people, followers of Jesus, people like us, can be so resistant to change. How it is we defend ourselves year after year against any real and lasting transformation. He wanted to know why people who say they love Jesus don't act, look, or sound much like him. I've never been able to shake that question. And I hope I'm never able to. Because across all these years I've spent in ministry, it's only intensified, actually. It's become more urgent because our world desperately needs people who are like Jesus. And we ourselves need the fulfillment and the joy and the hope that come from becoming like him. I can't shake the question. I don't want to shake the question, but I acknowledge that it's ironic how difficult change is for us. Because after all, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. The original and fundamental change out of nothing came everything, and God dreamed the height of mountains and the depths of oceans, the brightness of the sun and the vastness of space. God sang the birds into the skies and called the trees to stand at attention. God's artistry colored the infinite hues and tones of the world's canvas. All this beauty, all this novelty, all this surprise, all this diversity, all this delight, why then do we have the difficulty we have with curiosity and artistry and newness?
And why do we, with such, such a beautiful God, why do we settle for bland and blah? How is it that we worship the Creator God and manage to be apparently content with monochrome and monotone? And the, the language of newness runs throughout all of Scripture. Consider not the things of old, Isaiah said. Behold, I do a new thing. And Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Look, all things are becoming new. The seer of Revelation saw a new heaven and a new earth replacing the tired, weary earth. We use the language of change. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Born again, conversion, regeneration, transformation. As Paul put it so beautifully in the words he wrote to his friends in Corinth, when we turn to the Lord, when we turn to the Lord, we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. And I know you know that the, the root word of that word we translate glory is the same word from which we get our word doxology. Paul says we are being transformed, we are being changed into doxology into a life radiant and resonant with praise. And again, we get to the church essentially, into the church essentially by saying, I'm not managing my life so well by myself. I'd like new management, please. And I'd like to move in a new direction. That's essentially what it means to say Jesus is Lord. So we start acknowledging things need to be new with us. But then, you know, the empire of inertia strikes back. The status quo redoubles its grip. And, and I, I know people who just settle over and over again for what is. They just settle for what is. Rather than cooperating with God's grace and love which could take them, take us to what could be. And why is it, why is it, why is it we do this? I think the reason is pretty simple to say and that is, genuine change requires from us a kind of humility and honesty 
and vulnerability, which is difficult for us. And it also requires and invites us to open ourselves to a community of people who can help us. And all these things intimidate us, frankly. We've been taught to go it alone. Transformation hinges on Jesus being Lord, not me. And there are times when I like running my own life, even if I'm at risk for ruining it. Any of you know what that's like? So Luke's gospel tells us about a day when Jesus took his closest friends, Peter, John, and James, up on the mountain to pray. While he prayed, the blazing passion of his love for God became visible to his friends. The appearance of Jesus' face changed, Luke tells us, and his clothes became dazzling white. And into that shimmering light stepped two heroes of the Jewish faith, Moses the liberator and lawgiver and Elijah the prophet. And there they all three were, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, suffused with God's shining glory, becoming before the disciples' eyes a living doxology. There they were, surrounded by God's luminous mystery. It was a vision of who we may all become. And the wonder of what they saw dazzled and humbled Jesus' friends. A cloud engulfed them, and fear might have overwhelmed them. Had the voice from the cloud not said what they had heard Jesus say, the voice said to him at baptism, This is my Son, my chosen, my beloved. Listen to him. And then the voice fell silent. The cloud lifted. They saw only Jesus. This is an enacted parable of how transformation happens for us. We become doxology. We are changed into the people we really are, changed into the people we long to be, changed into the people God dreams we will be. We are changed as we rivet our eyes on the face of Jesus. And as we listen to his voice, and as we follow him down the mountain and through all of life, On the one hand, as I've acknowledged, change is difficult for us. But on the other, change is a gift. It's a gift that comes as we see life ourselves through Jesus. As we hear increasingly His voice as the guiding voice amid all the other clamoring voices which shout and whisper to us. And as we follow Him, asking who it is we can be and what it is we may do in light of His presence with us and His will for us. 
You see, true transformation isn't, though it sometimes feels that way, a self-help exercise, a do-it-yourself project. We really don't actually change ourselves. We allow ourselves to be changed when our steady vision and steady listening to the radiance and resonance of Jesus makes us like him. That's why we worship. And that's why we engage in Christian education. So maybe, maybe you and I could begin to think of what happens here in this room and what happens in all the other rooms of this church building. Maybe we could think of these places as high mountains in time. Or at least trailheads where we access the climb up the high mountain. Maybe we could think, oh yes, I get it. We worship actually Sunday by Sunday on 5th Avenue in downtown Huntington. I know that. But I think more truly we worship in this, at this high mountain in time. where we see and hear what is really true, what most matters, and center and recenter ourselves around Him again. I, I went to be pastor of the Asheville Church in September of 2011. And my first day on the job was September 9th. That was a Sunday. On September 11th, 2001, sorry, 2001, on September 11th, 2001, the new staff, my new staff, we were going on a, a retreat to get better acquainted. And as we were Preparing to leave, we got word that we should find a television and turn it on. And we saw that one airplane had already flown into one of those gleaming Trade Center towers. And while we watched, another did. And then we heard about the plane in Pennsylvania, the plane at the Pentagon. Obviously, we weren't going on a retreat. We, we needed to scramble to prepare to welcome people into our building to pray with each other and to God. And so we spent the afternoon making those arrangements, letting people know. And we were going to gather at about 6, and by 5, the room was full. People were sitting in the window seat standing along the edges of the sanctuary, people from our church, people from all over, because we needed to be together. We needed to pray. About 15 minutes before that service was to begin, um, I, I went in my office and 
ask myself some really hard questions. Did I really believe that the hymns we would pray, the hymns we would sing, and the prayers we would pray, and the tears we would shed, did I believe that these acts of worship were stronger than planes which had become bombs and the ongoing threat of terror? Did I have a conviction that the inspired Word of God and holy silence in which to listen to that Word, did I believe really that those are more enduring than wealth and might Could I, in good conscience, on this night and the following nights of national calamity, could I stand up in front of a room of hurting and fearful people and tell them that tears and grief, death and destruction, real and awful though they are, Pale beside the wonder and the goodness of God we meet in Jesus Christ. Did I dare to say these things on that night? It was a gut check for me. It was a moment of truth. While I stood there in my office grappling with these questions, I recalled some words that theologian Karl Barth once wrote. He said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against all the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against all the disorder of the world. And so I trusted again, maybe more deeply than ever I have, that the most important thing we can do to change our world and to allow ourselves to be changed is come again and again and again to Jesus to hear his voice, to attend to and commit to live his words, to follow him on the sometimes winding, dangerous path of life. That's the most important thing we can do. It's not the only thing. But it is the most important thing because the spirit of courage comes to life in song and surrender. Vision both takes shape and is inspired in wonder and in word. Prayer and praise 
are preliminary to any other vocation. And friends, your destiny and the world's destiny is doxology. We are all headed for glory. Amen.